Here's a message from today's episode's sponsor. Welcome to Real Time Real Talk, a Dexcom podcast dedicated to pharmacists and other healthcare professionals on the front lines, helping people thrive who live with diabetes. So me being able to get an alert that it's predicting my glucose will be less than 55 in the next 20 minutes and to eat some glucose so I don't have to get as low as I could have gone if I didn't get that alert. Or even sometimes I can prevent going low because I'm able to get some glucose soon enough in my body and just go on with my day and not interrupt playing football or trying to catch baseballs with my boys. So those are just a few of the things that I love. Dexcom is the leading developer of real-time continuous glucose monitoring, also known as RT-CGM and other digital technologies to better manage diabetes. Real-time CGM provides critical glycemic metrics for physicians, pharmacists, and diabetes specialists to act upon to help their patients live with as much freedom as possible. Dexcom empowers people to take control of diabetes through innovative, continuous glucose monitoring. Real Time Real Talk is a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. For more information on all Dexcom's technologies, products, and services, please visit Dexcom.com. That's D-E-X-C-O-M.com. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at PharmacyPodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. You're listening to the NASP Podcast. This specialty pharmacy podcast is a collaboration with the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy and the Pharmacy Podcast Network. The mission of the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy is to improve specialty pharmacy practice by promoting continuing professional education and certification of specialty pharmacists while advocating for public policies that ensure patient access to specialty medications. As the healthcare industry's leading podcast dedicated to the pharmacy profession, the Pharmacy Podcast Network is proud to bring our listeners the NASP Podcast in collaboration with the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy. Acela Health has been an amazing partner in a special series. And that word special is definitely part of this. That's specialty pharmacy. And, you know, we just all got back from the our time at Assembia. And Assembia transformed from um, a, a specialty pharmacy GPO into this mecca of bringing people together, technology, workflow process, in um, benefits uh, coordination, uh, best care ideas, patient advocacy. So when we get an opportunity to work with Acela Health and the one and only Mike Baldzicki to, to come on and build this series out and dig into different facets of what is specialty pharmacy and how is special pharmacy evolving and transforming to deliver better pharmacy care to our patients. Mike, I'm so excited that you're back and that you have uh, two very special guests. But I want to turn it over to Mike first to kind of take us where where we have been in the series and where we're going in today's episode. Um, Mike, take it away. 
Thanks, Todd. And I'm really excited to kind of now get into episode three that we're now into the series of 104. And, and as noted, Excel Health and our strategic partner, Omnicare, uh, along with the National Association, especially pharmacy, uh, and with the, obviously, the pharmacy podcast has really formed a unique podcast network of series, you know, and we finished one and two around various sectors of this patient journey mapping that we're talking about today. But today, you know, we're now getting into the, the I, I call it the weeds, right? The navigating the patient journey within specialty pharmacy from evaluation through treatment. And I cannot, you know, express my gratitude and just, you know, really interest in this series uh, because of our, our participants uh, that we have um, uh, within today's podcast. And that's Randy Falkenrath, the president of Onco360, and also Justin Manning, uh, group vice president and business development for Vivid Clear RX PBM. And, and these two will uh, obviously get into their intros and, and uh, talk a little bit on this podcast series. But, you know, they bring tremendous backgrounds and experiences around this patient journey mapping segment that we now are in, in series three for. And, and as noted, you know, this is a series of one of, one of four, and we're going to do the live event, uh, last one, um, uh, final episode recording live at the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy Annual Meeting and Expo at the Gaylord Palms Resort in Orlando on September 19th through 22nd. So again, if those folks that are listening haven't registered, please do so. It's going to be a great live event, one, obviously with NAS, but also the final recording and briefing document that we'll have for uh, live attendees besides those that attended this podcast. So, so with that, I want to kind of get into this series of, you know, obviously the patient journey mapping, looking at the evaluation through treatment and introduce our, our participants, Randy and Justin. So, you know, Randy and Justin, uh, say hello to the audience and uh, we're gonna kind of get into, you know, our discussion around this episode. Well, Mike, thanks for having me on. This is Randy Falkenrath. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm the president of Onco360 Specialty Pharmacy. Been in this space for about 16 years on the specialty side, uh, history on PBM um, drug manufacturer. I'm not a clinical pharmacist, but I love being in this space. I'm looking forward to the conversation today about the patient journey. Yeah, thank you as well, Mike. Um, this is Justin Manning um, with VivaClearRx, and uh, we're at PBM. I've been in this business, uh, PBM side, for about a year. Um, I come from a, a pharmacy background and, and a pharmacist as well, um, and more in the retail pharmacy operations side of things, uh, which is a little bit different diving into the specialty side here, um, but excited to talk about it and how it interacts. Um, I typically work more with employer groups and what they're doing in that specialty space and how they're interacting with specialty pharmacies and their members and their patients are are accessing that care. And so excited to talk about these things today. Yeah, I think Justin, you know, you kind of, you created a, a buzzword with that, you know, employer segment that we're now, you know, seeing pushed in the, into the forefront of looking and addressing specialty pharmacy, right? Just because we are now into, into a self-funded, self-insured market and employers are really aggressively looking at this space um, uh, from a cost perspective. And, you know, they're new to this. And for us to come out there and have a series like this and educate them about the patient journey mapping in specialty pharmacy, but particularly this topic, evaluating uh, through the whole treatment paradigm, I think it's critical just because the, the, the nuances here are that specialty pharmacy journey is, as we know, complex, it's costly, it's confusing, right? And it's controversial in regards to the barriers throughout the journey uh, that you know the patient may stand within, but uh, obviously trying to gain those optimal patient outcomes. Um, so with that, you know, from that perspective, Justin, what have you seen as a key roadblock today in, in patients obtaining these type of prescriptions around specialty? 
Yeah, really from a perspective of employer groups um, that we talk to. I mean, every broker we talk to, employer groups that we're talking to, specialty pharmacy is the number one thing they want to talk about, know more about, um, and, and try to understand. I think, you know, as you look back, you know, five, 10 years ago, um, the specialty spend cost for them, you know, was rising, but it wasn't at the level it is today. You know, now 50% of their spend plus is, is in specialty pharmacy. Um, and it's really only impacting one to 2% of their, their employees. And so they're really trying to figure out how do I manage those patients, take care of those patients, because we still want to take care of them. They still want to have those employees. They want to, you know, retain those employees, especially in the environment today with trying to hire people and retain people. Um, and especially pharmacy is and the cost of it is the biggest you know item they're talking about. I think the biggest thing there is they're wanting to make sure there's access to those medications. They want to make sure there's optimal outcomes occurring um, and really trying to control that total cost of care um, and kind of lining those things as we go through things. So as we're trying to support them from a pharmacy benefit management standpoint, is just walking them through those different options that are out there. And, and they're honestly, they're looking for every, every option or every different um, mode of accessing specialty pharmacy that they can. Um, and it really starts to become a, a pretty large conversation piece. Yeah, I, I think to that point, you know, especially pharmacy nowadays, to me, it's an umbrella of four areas, right? We have traditional, you know, pharmacy benefit, oral therapies around specialty. We have medical benefit, which is obviously infusion drugs. Um, and, and the two nuances that I think we got to attack differently is this rare ultra orphan rare disease population. And then what we're going to kind of head into more realistically, and, and particularly Q4 this year and on, is the gene and cell therapy markets, right? So, you know, with that, I think that brings in the complexities of dealing with specialty pharmacy. And to the point, you know, employers are really looking at costs. And, you know, I can't, you know, really get into the, the best person to really talk about top costs in a therapeutical area that is on everyone's number one mind, oncology. So with Randy representing Onco360 as the specialty oncology management, you know, platform out there, you know, Onco360 has got a reputation really be the, the, the number one choice of specialty pharmacy vendor management for oncology and having Randy uh, to represent that organization and just his overall experience. Again, you know, I, you know, oncology is so complex in regards to these overall specialty medications and trying to manage the logistics of these type of medications from shipment to patient it is really just, you know, Kind of alluded in regards to the market dynamics. So, Randy, you know, where do you begin, especially when a, a employer group or helpline says, you know, what about oncology? How do I grab my arms around this, uh, and and how does that affect patient management? Yeah, I thought I knew where to begin until you added on those layers <laughs> of complexity, Mike. <laughs> you know, for me, it, it, I think the the access issues, for example, start off with the fundamentals, and these are the things that have been around for a long time. It's benefit design. Uh, it used to be drugs that had the right indication. You know, having solutions for patients, that's becoming less and less of a problem relative to the pipeline. So, you know, you got benefit design, you've got uh, network controls around that, you've got certainly cost thresholds. Uh, and I think there's some other fundamentals around patients and their uh, willingness to start on the therapy and being supported in that process to get them on and, and continue to keep them on and support them on that uh, therapy throughout their, their regimen of care. Um, economics plays a huge part in this, and it's partly the obvious things around a patient being able to afford their cost share. 
Now, the industry's done a really good job in figuring out on the foundation side, how do you fund that? From a pharmacy perspective, how do you get access to that? Uh, but the other part of that is that, uh, you know, once they're on that therapy, there's that ongoing cost of care that they have to deal with, plus the total cost of their treatment, which is not just drug, but it's the other medical costs around that. And so the burden has gotten uh, pretty much out of control for most normal uh, consumers uh, in the marketplace. The government's you know, trying to address that to some extent. But I think the cost part of it is a huge piece. Uh, we, along with others in the healthcare delivery channel, try to find solutions on how to mitigate some of that to the extent that we can. Um, but at the end of the day, that remains to be the biggest problem. It's no longer, do I have a drug that will work? We have those. Now, can I afford the drug that's available? Uh, and can I stay on that medication throughout the course of my therapy? And sometimes it can be as short as six months. In other cases, it could be five years or more. Uh, I would add to it the details around rare and orphan. You know, we find in our business that a lot of these cancer diagnoses are, in fact, rare cancer conditions. So we have this subpopulation within a subpopulation. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's interesting from a clinical care perspective to wrap your head around and deliver services around that type of a population. Uh, but it's necessary to be able to do it in a way that has maximizing that patient, their investment from a cost perspective, uh, and that precious therapy to ensure that you get the most value from a clinical care perspective uh, out of every opportunity that you have in treating those patients. Yeah, I think Randy, bring up, oh, go ahead, Justin. Sorry. Yeah, Randy, I, I think you really hit on um, a few good pieces there. I think really more today is it's finding the right solution because um, the solutions are all there now um, for the most part, right? And, and there's obviously still more development coming, but finding that right solution and then controlling those costs from that standpoint, I think helping get patients through that process and maybe trying to find ways to streamline that process of care coordination, um, getting the funding to them, getting through prior authorizations. We all know we love that. Um, and, and just helping patients get to the medication in a timely manner um, to a certain extent as well. So we don't have extra costs um, coming down the road just because we're delaying treatment or delaying access to the patient, which then you know hurts the patient in the long run. Um, they've got increased healthcare expenses, which again, rolls back into my side of things a little bit as a PBM. Now we've got extra expenses to an employer group that are not maybe on the pharmacy side, but they're on the medical side of things. And so looking at that total cost of care um, equation to side of it. Yeah, you know, the infrastructure we deal with, the legacy of the, whether it's pharmacy or medical benefit, still has some huge hurdles left to overcome. Same things I experienced first getting into specialty back in 2006, you know, the prior authorization process, the faxing that continues to go on in the marketplace. I mean, just the rudimentary ways that the, the industry has built itself around patient care um, is extremely difficult to address and, and to try to close those gaps. Time to first fill, as an example. Uh, and then, you know, we as a pharmacy provider will look at this metric, which I think is commonly referred to as no-goes. You know, patients that you get the referral, you get the prescription, best intentions to fill it, and guess what? Can't get funding, can't get the physician on the phone, can't get the clinical data for the PA, you can't get the patient to respond. Uh, and, and so all of that, the further out you go, the higher the likelihood that they're never going to start on therapy because time elapses and things happen. And next thing you know, you've got a you know, primary non-adherence, i.e. they never take the first fill. So, you know, we've got to deal with those fundamentals in addition to the big looming obvious things like funding as part of the barriers in that process. Yeah, I think you guys bring up two really interesting points, even things that we're seeing working with our 
strategic partner Opnicare around rare disease itself is this precision medicine. You know, you, you noted, you know, Randy, the point with oncology, it's just not attacking oncology. I mean, if you look at the pipeline of rare disease, there are rare precision medicines going on in oncology. So not only, you know, as we look at and trying to address, you know, this cost parameter of my fee schedules, my rebates, my copay max programs, my discounts, I think, you know, from your, your both standpoints, I'd like to understand, and maybe I'll start with, you know, Justin first, you know, especially working with the PBM and that environment is the clinical standpoint. You know, what are, what are pharmacists nowadays engaging in from a clinical standpoint with these type of patients in this specialty pharmacy arena, particularly around these type of precision therapies? I, I think it's a, an evolving landscape we're still grabbing our arms around. Yeah, I, I really think um, as we're interacting in that space from a clinical standpoint and working with, you know, especially pharmacy partners to do that, um, I, I think it's really using those pharmacists and their expertise to really find that right drug at the right dose at the right time and really having that be personalized care. Um, part of that is, is using, you know, the different solutions out there in the marketplace, like genetic testing, um, you know, pharmacogenomics. Those are big pieces, I think, that aren't being utilized, maybe to the extent they it could be yet. And I think that's a very, you know, large growing area. And especially as you look at all the pipeline drugs coming down the road, a lot, especially in that, you know, gene therapy space and orphan and those drugs, those they're all looking at biometric or bio um, biomarkers um, to, to hear, to take care of that, um, that concern and start to personalize those, those opportunities there. Um, as we look at other things as well, again, it's just looking at ways to use technology to again, personalize that predict adherence um, and start looking at those social determinants to start again, personalizing that care, being more precise in what we're doing to really direct patients to the solutions and the, the care coordination that they need and, and being not a, a gunshot, you know, but being more of a precision um, you know, type of a modality there that again, driving that cost down and not just using spreading, you know, throwing dollars out there at everyone um, to say, hey, this is gonna work. And really, again, now saying, okay, here's the targeted costs we can spend on this individual patient, knowing that we're going to get good outcomes from that standpoint. Yeah, and I would add to that, Mike, uh, you know, as you think about the recipe and the mix of all that, the clinicians play a huge role in that process as well. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of using analogies, whether that is practical or not, I'm going to try it out here. You know, when you think about it, it's like uh, you have a license to drive a car, but that doesn't mean you're driving safely 100% of the time. So, you know, as a clinician, having a license to be able to practice in medicine, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a pharmacist, whether you're a board-certified oncology pharmacist, doesn't guarantee that on a day-to-day -day basis you're really maximizing and even complying with the education or the quality requirements that are uh, assumed to be part of that role. I think the organizations really have a, a responsibility to challenge people to operate as the industry refers to it as at the top of your license. So having it is one thing, practicing and complying and supporting it. And, and I would say finding ways to extend the boundaries of clinical care, especially in those places where it isn't a generalized condition, a generalized patient situation. It's much more specific to that patient on that medication at that stage in their therapy and that stage of their diagnosis and the evolution of their disease. Um, really, bit of, and using technology to the extent where you can identify that, but also the technology to drive the interventions at the right point in the process and making sure that the intervention is actually driving value as you go forward. So that recipe to me is critical. 
uh, in that process and the combination of technology, but also practice relative to the clinical interventions. Yeah, Rain, that was a great point there too. And I, I think one of the things that we've seen in our space and, and what we're kind of taking an approach in and especially pharmacy space is really having a centers of excellence type of approach where it is very disease state specific. You, you get, because of these diseases that we're dealing with and the complexity of them, um, you have to have that specialized education. You, you just can't know everything, right? Um, you know, I even go back to my education as a pharmacist and, and, and man, I mean, it, I, can, I know one subsection but I don't know everything, right? And there's no way to know everything and everything is changing so rapidly and so quickly, there's no way to know it all. And so having those specialty pharmacy partners that kind of have those niche niches and can, can kind of work in those certain marketplaces and relying on those then as an accessing and relying on those as a PBM really helps us kind of, you know, tailor that message again, personalized care and helping coordinate with all the different groups because it's not always just about the drug. It's the other opportunities that are out there as well to help with that overall patient experience. Yeah. Well, one thing, and uh, if you don't mind me, Mike, continuing on this, this line of conversation here, you know, one of the challenges that we face in the market is this conflict between lowering cost of care, i.e. lowering the cost of medications at the same time and increasing expectation or demand or, or at appropriate requirement around elevating the level of care for those patients. So uh, we have new phenomenon like uh, digital pharmacies. We have new scenarios like $48 imatinib generic, which when you get it through a specialty pharmacy is probably a $2,000 medication, $48. You don't get the clinical care. You're not going to get a board certified oncology pharmacist coaching you through that $48 generic. That model can't exist in this marketplace. So it's interesting to compare and contrast how we've evolved to manage the cost side of it, but not really accommodating the realities of the importance of clinical care and the competency necessary to make that medication do what it needs to do and support that patient through the journey. So we have to reconcile that as the market evolves, as we have in the past, to make sure that we're being thoughtful about and not chasing dollars for the sake of dollars, that we're really looking at the combination of cost of care, but also clinical quality and clinical outcomes in combination. Yeah, I, I think you bring up a key point. I mean, in, in, especially in the last three years, you know, working in the mid-market health plan sector, particularly the, the, the ASO, administrative services only, self-insured market, employer groups, TPAs, third-party administrators, it's shocking to me that really it's all about costs and that's what everyone first thinks. But it's really about how are patients currently navigating or their own employees navigating this healthcare ecosystem or landscape? I mean, I think a recent study came out where it said 20% of VPs of HR companies are really the, the you know, 20% or less really understand their own benefits that they're deploying out there in the employees. The rest don't know. So how are, you know, patients supposed to navigate this complex, an array of tools and resources that we just kind of, you know, high level went through? I mean, I, I'd like to hear from you both of just what are you seeing or your organization doing to help patients facilitate this complex mess because, again, benefit design, plan language, where to go for medications besides, I just got prescribed IVIG and I, you know, I'm, I, this is my first runaround with it. What, what do I do? And that's the response that most of these patients are, are really feeling nowadays besides cost. Yeah. So I would offer up from a pharmacy perspective that, uh, you know, a large portion of our population, as you might expect, is Medicare based. And we understand the implications and complications relative to changes in their benefit year over year. 
So one of the things that we've done is proactively create awareness within our organization, with our call center teams, and be able to provide support for these patients who we know when they start on their new benefit year will have an impact from a cost, you know, out-of-pocket cost, educate in advance what that means to them, help them not specifically down to the plan, but educate them on what they should be looking for when they do the renewal to go into their next year's plan uh, and prepare them for the realities of the donut hole and other things that are going to happen. So we can't make those choices for them, but we can make sure that they're aware of what their new reality is and how they need to protect themselves and those uh, important choices they make around benefit design and cost. Yeah, benefit design certainly plays a huge, huge role. And, and, and I saw that, especially even in retail pharmacy, again, you know, working with that Medicare population, especially their plans change every year and they can completely switch, you know, the, the formulary and on those drugs that they're utilizing. And so it obviously creates a, you know, another obstacle that they have to, you know, go through to get that. I think some of the things that we're trying to do is really just be more educational with those patients, reaching out to those patients when there is benefit design changes and talking them through them, through that scenario, what they need to do, who they need to call, who do they need to, you know, interact with to get the medications they need or start the process of prior authorizations or other things that need to occur as they switch benefit designs or change benefit designs. And, and sometimes it's even employer groups that we already have it, that are just making a change for the next year um, and, and are still using us, but you know, using that, that formulary differently as they're customizing those things for their own unique employer group. Um, I think that's really where it, it, it does get complicated. And again, the challenges is really coordinating that care, I think through the whole process of prescribing to, you know, especially pharmacy to the patient and then really watching those outcomes over the time period as well that get challenging because a lot of times they're a lot of times in this, this healthcare space, right? We're very siloed. Um, prescriber does his job, especially pharmacy does their job, the pharmacy benefit manager does their job, and we don't talk very well like, with each other. And I think that's one of the pieces too, as we continue to work, is, is getting better at accessing data, looking at, at the holistic whole approach and really trying to coordinate that care for that patient. And again, it's obviously a challenge because the prescriber doesn't know the benefit design, doesn't know which PBM they're working with, which formulary they're on, because there's multiple formularies within a PBM, right? So it's navigating those different pieces. And then that's, I think, the biggest challenge too. Once the patient does get prescribed, you know, again, where, where do they start to, to get that information? Yeah, I would add to that, Justin. That's a great point because it, you know when you look at the look at the care continuum, you look at the patient journey. It really does start with the initial diagnosis. You know, it starts with their primary care doc, and they involve a specialist. At some point, they determine that they need maybe it's a traditional therapy to start to treat the symptoms of what they're dealing with. And through testing, all of a sudden they've now been given the diagnosis of a lifetime, and they're trying to figure out where to go next. It's hard in our place. Uh, and you probably see it as well from a PBM perspective to create those or, or create linkage between those suboptimized parts of healthcare delivery and healthcare management. Uh, we're not contracted that way. You know, the, the PBMs, as an example, play a meaningful role in the organization or in the, in the kind of facilitation of access relative to their stakeholders. Uh, but, you know, it really is about that pharmacy and that reimbursement rate and that set of services minimally necessary to support patients. There's no interoperability requirement uh, or enablement as part of the model. I would argue even having worked in large PBMs with own specialty pharmacies, they're still behind the curve relative to even internal connectivity between their pharmacies and their health plan owners. 
as an example, or their pharmacies and their PBM and the non-specialty therapies, looking at them as a total patient, you know, all, all treatments for their condition. Uh, and, and so where's the upside? Where's the incentive? Where's the opportunity technically? And it's not a technology issue, but how do you facilitate that? So we can now include them in the process or in the care plan. We can act on interventions on their behalf. We can also suggest and provide feedback into that larger schema of information about that patient that others will be able to leverage in terms of better care, faster care, appropriate interventions around that. Very few of those examples exist today. And that to me is one of the biggest gaps in trying to tie all that together so that we're not operating in independently and kind of blindly to some extent about the patient. Yeah, I, I think that's critical. I mean, one of the things, particularly in the last five years, we have seen uh, are, are no, numerous nuances of these different vendor opportunities um, in this space. Uh, I, I even call them prescription decision support technology vendors, right? You know, really, you know, emphasizing the partnerships around how they can have interoperability around data, communication, optimized workloads, et cetera. But I still I agree with you, Randy. I think we're still in a very beginning phases of how we truly have interoperability from an end-to-end -end solution around this topic, especially pharmacy journey mapping. Because, you know, like you said, the big box PBMs, they have all the different subsidiaries and, and technology companies, and they still lack that interoperability of, of even work streams between the organizations of how they better support that patient. So as we know, technology is obviously empowering decisions around healthcare now. What in your view is the need for technology advancement and adoption from that perspective? You know, we see a lot of digital vendors, even new PBM models that are more technology-based and claims processing and optimizing workflows, but we're still, you know, kind of not here, I would say. Love your opinions from your both perspectives. And I'll start with Justin on that. Yeah, I think as you know, that journey in kind of advancing technology and, and moving, you know, adopting the new technologies, um, it is a hard one. I, I think what we're finding with employer groups as well is that they're they're wanting to know more and more, especially in the specialty pharmacy space and in the spend in the space, what's happening with that patient um, on almost a granular granular level, and looking at you know, are these treatments working? Are they not working? Um, and, and really using technology to get there and to understand that, right? So we're, we're tapping in with our vendors and partners to get more of that information to essentially say, hey, this, this is the right cost and right spend to be doing um, and, and helping advance that patient and having those discussions with the employer group. Um, as empl those employer groups, again, they're looking at it from a perspective of, okay, we know we're going to have this spend and especially pharmacy, is it the right spend? And, and is, it, is it a long-term right spend? And again, we're, we're in a different population group that we're typically working with. We're working with more larger employer groups, self-funded groups, you know, that they're looking at it from a long-term spend opportunity. They're looking at the patient and employee. They're planning on keeping that employee for 10, 15, 20 years, hopefully, you know, in that space, not a Medicare space where maybe it is a one-year turnover, which again, creates a whole other level of issues and problems because of the focus then of those groups that are managing those patients. It's a one-year look at instead of it maybe being a five-year, 10-year look. So it's it's maybe easier for us in our space that we're operating in to make more long-term strategic proactive decisions 
knowing that that payoff is spread out over more of a 10 year period. So using that technology and using those vendors that we're having, you know, to really drive that, that message, get that information, know what, uh, what we should do or what we could do kind of proactively by using those digital tools and programming and that clinical aspect of it. And I think as I look at technology as well, one of the challenges is there's so much technology out there to a certain extent. It's using the right technology and, and using it for the right subset of patients because you can throw a ton of stuff at a patient. And if they, if you're just throwing it all again at, at this information at them, how much can they really ingest? Are they using the tools to the full extent? Or is it, you know, just hitting them, they're using it for one or two months and then it just falls off. And then now you've you've kind of just blown up the situation and, and made it harder for them to get the care they need, the education they need, and, and they start to become more um, susceptible to, you know, not continuing therapy or other, having other issues, or if they do need to be reached out to in the future, they, they don't want to be talked to, or they don't want to interact with those digital platforms and that technology. So I think sometimes we need to be careful on how much technology we're pushing at a patient, you know, how much we're pinging them and talking to them and texting them and calling them. And, and try to coordinate those things as well, because again, it's there's a fine line, right, of of overdoing it and and not have, getting the information we also need, because we do know those surveys, the quality of life surveys, the work productivity surveys, um, the 20 other surveys that we need to do that help with appearance and help with outcomes um, and helping with the you know social determinants are all important, but maybe don't hit on everything that we need to. Yeah, those are some great points in there, Justin. You know, part of the challenge, even in the scenario where you've got a, an employer who has a long tenure with their employees, uh, changing benefits frequently can often be disruptive. Changing vendors in their networks, as an example, also creates disruption. Uh, and I think even the, the associated digital companions that go with them, not the people part of it, but the tools, you know, the disruption and changing from one to the other. Uh, I think the other extreme of that is where you've got a, an overabundance of options and it becomes confusing for patients. It's like, uh, you know, when was the last time you went out and searched for a you know, medication adherence app? There's probably a thousand of them out there. Uh, you know, it's interesting that the private investment community continues to think that theirs is going to be the best and willing to invest in it. But so it's not a shortage of technology options. I think there's a continuity issue uh, and an applicability, uh, personalization to me and, and the style of the way of interacting that is appropriate for me based on my preferences and my technological adoption curve. Uh, it, you know, and as a supplier, as a supporter in this market, uh, you know, as uh, a um, service delivery partner relative to either the PBM side of it or a partner relative to the physician and even the patient, we need to offer a portfolio. We can't say it's our way and only our way. And if it doesn't, you know, if you, if you want anything that looks different than what we offer you, too bad. We have to be thoughtful to people who are on one end of the kind of technophobic curve to the other end of, I'll try anything. I'm very savvy, very comfortable, in fact, you're behind the curve and I'm already thinking about what the next solution is you should bring forward for me and people like me in my condition. And that makes it challenging from an investment perspective to figure out where do you put your money down? So part of that is stepping back to the industry as a way to create more, I guess, consistency or interoperability on those or to try to minimize the transitional effect of moving from one pharmacy to another or from one uh, you know, health plan to another in that journey. 
I know those are too idealistic of uh, an expectation, uh, but from a patient perspective, they need choice. They need to have some degree of consistency. Uh, the, the last challenge, and I think you touched on this a little bit, Justin, is you know, signing up for an app is one thing, but actually using it and adopting it and integrating it in your daily care or, or your ongoing journey is the bigger challenge. And, and we experienced that. And I think you experienced that as well. Uh, how do you get that return experience and how do you leverage that to create more rich service and support that creates that increased utilization and that uh, kind of uh, ongoing, ongoing, you know, use and application of that tool, whatever that might be. Yeah, and I'll throw one more, you know, caveat in this topic of technology. And if you're not paying attention, and one segment that we really don't talk a lot in, in, in this section of patient journey mapping is the collective, collectively, how do we identify and address the shortcomings on patients with pharma companies? If you're following what is happening with digital health is nuances of partnerships going on with pharma companies within their product or therapeutical brand areas. So not only that we as organizations in the healthcare ecosystem are now addressing partnerships with vendor selections in this area, we have now pharma you know, really going after this as well. So from that perspective, you know, what are your thoughts in the shift of direction that we are and we're seeing, you know, starting to see this movement not only around telehealth and other adherence-based mental health, behavioral health, you know, apps and, and digital services, but this home-based service as well. I mean, there's companies out, even out there taking what you would normally go to the ER for and shift that to the home. So again, you know, the complexities of not just only especially pharmacy space in itself, but just the healthcare ecosystem on these digital health platforms is complex, right? And, and again, how does that impede the patient journey mapping to fully understand what's available to them? Just because... You know, again, in our space, it's so complex in itself to understand. Yeah, and, and healthcare has traditionally been way behind on technology. And, and we're, we are now starting to see it really creep up pretty quickly. So how does that, you know, movement really affect our space? Randy? Yeah, there, uh, you know, if everyone had the flexibility of having a navigator, to help them. And I know that's a thing that's been in the industry for a while or across the industry and patient navigators, um, you know, someone who basically could be like your concierge to help you make the right choices, be in the right places, access the right services, things like that. It might simplify things, but that's a costly proposition. And maybe AI can help solve a little bit of that for us. But, you know, I think the, the thing that has always intrigued me about the healthcare space is as complex as it may be and as challenging as things like regulations are that come to the forefront, the industry is super smart about innovating and to the point of innovating down to the, to the minutia. And so, so many options available that uh, have been brought to market and gaps that have been identified that are now filled with sub-industries like home care, you know, the ability to do uh, telehealth. You know, initially was a great idea. I experimented with that over a decade ago. Very low adoption. Now, all of a sudden, it's the latest thing, right? So how do you leverage that? How do you get value out of that? And how do you avoid creating excess noise around that so it introduces a whole new level of confusion? The bigger part of that, we started off talking about cost management, cost of drugs, uh, does become the cost piece of it, right? 
you know, how do we make sure that we're doing those things in a way that can be uh, meaningful to the patient, but also is covered. So the vendors have to be reimbursed, otherwise patients paying out of cost, out of pocket, or they're paying a disproportionate share of those services. So you gotta create a new problem by introducing a new solution as part of that model. Yeah, I would completely agree with that side of it. Um, you know, obviously telehealth and home-based services have greatly improved access and, you know, and really have kind of fit the needs of, you know, patients today, you know, being more consumers in healthcare and really wanting their own choices and wanting stuff brought to them or done for them differently and, and them not maybe going to places. And so, you know, I, I live in the Midwest and so you can drive sometimes you, sometimes you have to drive, you know, an hour, two hours, three hours to go get your healthcare service especially in these, you know, special needs or special disease states, you know, accessing that information. So I think telehealth has really helped in that space. I even think just from, you know, getting easier access to that healthcare, getting it to, at, getting it for them at their home when they, you know, can, they don't have to drive, they don't have to take those extra steps to go get the information. But again, how do you control the cost of that, right? Because there is additional cost with going to them instead of them coming to you and controlling that piece. So I think it's also very nice to have in the specialty pharmacy space. And as a pharmacist, again, you know, having that face-to-face -face interaction is so much more valuable. Um, you can have a lot of phone call interactions. You can't read those nonverbal cues of the patient understanding or knowing what they're doing um, and under, you know, and really that education process. And so having sometimes this telehealth option for our pharmacists to use with patients, I think is really key and just the educational process and understanding that the patient does actually understand what they're what they're doing, how they're taking it, um, and I think that greatly, you know, obviously improves the outcomes of the patient as well. Yeah, that can be hugely impactful depending on where they are in their journey. You know, an initial diagnosis of a life-threatening condition, having someone on the other side that demonstrates compassion uh, and is able to help them understand and provide comfort, and we've got you, we can support you, we can make this work for you. Uh, and we're going to help you deal with the side effects of these medications can be hugely impactful at that stage. And maybe that's the only time that it's appropriate for them or that they feel like they need that. And then they're on their own to continue through the traditional interactions. But I, I think the availability of it is a huge opportunity space. Uh, and again, the portfolio, uh, making that available as an option and getting people comfortable with it, um, it can create giant upsides from a patient comfort perspective, uh, and which obviously, as we know, can lead to better adherence, can lead to more uh, confidence in their ability to manage themselves through the therapy. Can't agree with you more, but you know, Justin and Randy, I cannot thank you enough. Uh, amazing podcast series uh, that, you know, evaluating the, the, uh, the patient journey mapping from evaluation through treatment. Again, obviously there's a huge amount of work to be done in the specialty pharmacy patient journey mapping. And what we are beginning to see is an understanding that how we deliver care must match the life flow of the person getting the care. And I, I want to thank again Excel Health and our strategic partner OptiCare. Cannot you know thank enough the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy and PPN for this uh, great partnership and uh, patient journey mapping series. Again, our final series that will be live at the National Association uh, annual meeting on September 19th through the 22nd. Please register and attend. Uh, it's going to be a great venue working with PPN and ASP. Thank you. Thank you.